Hi everyone, I'm Derek Arden and welcome to Monday Night Live, live and uncut podcast. Tonight I'm delighted to have Damien Lewis, the prolific author, with us today. His new book is just out, in fact it came out on the 26th of August, I'm ploughing through it uh, very quickly, as soon as I can find time to read it in detail. Congratulations on that, Damien. And I think it's poignant that we're talking to you tonight, a day after Remembrance Sunday, which is uh, really key. And I know some of the veterans that you've um, you've interviewed for your books are still alive, but that number's going down very quickly. But we'll talk about that uh, in a minute. Uh, Forged in Hell is the name of the book, From Desert Rats to Dogs of War, The Mavericks Who Made the SAS. SAS. I was um, curious to see that it's authorised by the family of Paddy Main, which you write about in most of the books. Damien, tell us, tell us uh, first of all about the new book and uh, how exciting it is and see the publicity that you've had. Yeah, so in a sense, it's a, it, it's a sequel to um, SAS Brothers in Arms, um, which came out last year, and um, that covered really the first 18 months of the formation of the SAS, so 1941 through to early 1943, and and both books, that one and this one, and then the third, so it will be a trilogy, I imagine, although my publisher are very um, patient and allow me pretty much to write what I want. Uh, it was intended just to be one book in the first place, but it all, it all fell out of uh, the serendipitous delivery uh, that, that, that was given to me as a historian and an author, which was Paddy Main's War Chest. Um, so for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure most of you do, uh, Blair Paddy Main was the commander of the SS for most of the war. And um, his war chest, which was stuffed full of documents, diaries, letters, photographs, everything you could imagine from five years of waging war behind enemy lines had been kept in the main family home in Northern Ireland for decades and about 10 years ago I was invited to go and and study it and all the memorabilia that went with it and so these books have fallen out of that unique and precious trove of wartime material. So Fortune in Hell picks up where SAS band uh, Brothers in Arms left off so it opens I guess in February 1943 and takes you through uh, into the drive into Europe where the SAS spearheaded uh, first, the Operation Husky land landings, soft underbelly of Europe, as Churchill called it, and then onwards into Nazi and fascist Europe. So that's really the story. And it follows Maine and his band of brothers as they as they serve at the tip of the spear, but also try to ensure the SAS survives and doesn't get put out to grass and disbanded, as so many on high command wish to do with them from the very get go, because they were perennially deeply unpopular. Mm. Mm. And I read in the Daily Mail that it's the true story of the Guns of Navarone, which, of course, was a film when I was a boy that uh, I watched big time. Was that uh, was that fiction? Uh, the Guns of Navarone or, you know, Guns of Navarone is a fiction. Obviously, it's a novel, but it was based upon, you know, loosely based upon, um, you know, missions that happened in World War Two, one of which undoubtedly was the opening mission of SAS Forged in Hell, where uh, Paddy Main and 287 of his men are tasked to storm the cliff top uh, shore guns on Sicily at Capomulo di Porco, the, the, the peninsula of the pig's head, 
um, to take out those shore guns before they could blow the invasion fleet out of the water. And this was, of course, the largest Allied invasion fleet ever then ever assembled, 500,000 men at arms and, and hundreds and hundreds of warships. So if those guns were not taken out by Maine and his raiders, then, of course, uh, Operation Husky risked failure. So the echoes with Navarone are, are very real. And it was, I mean, you know, Maine and his men were you know, outnumbered 50 to 1, you know, scaling impossible cliffs, carrying impossible loads on an impossible mission, you could argue. So it, it has very, you know, real similarities to that to that fictional mission. I just got to that point in the book and I've just I was just reading last night that the weather was incredibly bad, wasn't it? Just as they arrived off the Sicilian shore and they didn't know whether to go ahead or not. Yeah, there's this terrible moment where you can imagine, you know, Maine has that they're literally in sight of Sicily, so they can see Mount Etna. Um, and Maine has to make the decision: do they go ahead with the mission? In which case, as he says, the wee boats may not live in the water because they're being their tiny landing craft are being put in the water from a converted passenger ferry, the Ulster Monarch. So all of his men might drown, or does he call off the mission? In which case, the Operation Husky, Husky landings might fail, and the Allied invasion of Europe become a disaster and so of course there is really no decision to be made Maine has to uh, green light the mission um so he is you know the first into the landing craft leading from the front as always mm. yeah and i was also picking up some things on that about um a 12 year old boy that was um captured by the british who was fighting for the germans and uh, he burst out crying so being british they let him go and some stories yeah. I believe there were kids of that age actually fighting in world war ii yes this is this so the book actually opens the first chapter is 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 spring 45 and it opens in a sense uh with the with one of the seminal moments in, in terms of preserving the ss history so what i'm trying to cut it down to a really short story so what happens is April 45, the SAS again serving at the tip of the spear, pushing into Nazi, uh, sorry, Nazi Germany. And they they suffer very severe uh, fighting and casualties at a German town, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it properly, called Schneeren in west northwest Germany. Uh, and they're fighting against Vogsturm, which is the German home defence uh, SS units, diehard SS units, but also Hitler youth units. And so some of these uh young german boys who are press ganged into fighting our teenagers and some as young as 12 and because they suffer such terrible casualties taking schneer and town and because it seems so in a sense so pointless because clearly the war is lost and germany is on its it, it, it's it's dying legs uh they it, in schneer and town they capture what's called the chronic of and, and the chronic of schneer and town is this giant leather bound book it's it's absolutely enormous it's bound together with brass studs and these are the books that hitler gives to each of his favored town folks in which they are to record the kind of glories and and the achievements of that town under the reich and so the ss steal it take it back to the uk then take it back to northern ireland which is the main family home remove the brass studs take out the german pages and replace them with what becomes the record of the SAS at war. So all the reports and diary entries and news cuttings and, and, and all the uh, documentation they've collected over five years behind enemy lines. And the reason this is so important is that in October 45, of course, with the SAS being perennially unpopular 
with those on high, the unit was disbanded. It was summarily disbanded. Everyone was either sent back to their unit or sent back to Civvy Street. So that record that's been secretly preserved in Maine's household, bound in in the chronic covers, and which became becomes known as the Paddy Maine War Diary, is essential to the safeguarding of the unit's wartime history. Wow, and you've had access to that, have you? And where is it now? Still in, uh, is it in a museum? So May, it was it was hidden in the Maine family home for, for many decades, and then eventually the Maine family donated it to the SAS Regimental Association, you know, rightfully so. So it's preserved for posterity, but what they kept in the home what was part of this incredible treasure trove of documents and, and, and memorabilia that I went to see are the original pages of the chronic, which, wow. as you can imagine, are, you know, absolutely, well, they're living history. Mm. And that's the English SAS version, not the German records from the German. No, those are the German records. There is also a copy of the original yeah. uh, English documentation, but but the actual SAS Paddy Main War Diary, which now became is known as the SAS War Diaries held at the Regimental Association. Gee whiz. And while we're on that, uh, you talk about a guy called Titch Davidson, whose two brothers had been killed uh, already in the war. And um, he looked 14 and everyone thought he was 14. He said he was 21 and told uh, told the general what he could do if he didn't believe he was 21. I love that story. Yeah. So they're training for this Mission Impossible in North Africa, Maine and his 300 bands of, of, of lots of SAS originals, but many new recruits. And one of them is, chap, is this chap, Titch Davidson, who is underage I and mean, he's, he's, he's lied about his age to sign up. But that's highly, uh, high, very normal. I mean, you know, so many of these individuals that you read about um, lied about their age to sign up. And there's one story about uh, earlier on in the war, right at the start of the SAS formation, where there's uh, there's one recruit who gets nicknamed the kid or the boy because he's so young and they know he's underage, but he still gets in. And then 60 French SAS, free French SAS or free French parachutists get recruited into the SAS because they're low on numbers. And the, and the French parachutists actually have a boy who's even younger. So the British, the British uh, recruit who's known as the kid or the boy gets gets usurped by this Frenchman who comes in, a Frenchman called Leostic. And so this this um, this this habit of having you know individuals serve who are who are considerably below uh, the age that one should be to sign up is not unusual. It lasts right the way through to the end of the war. Um, and uh, yeah, so when um, when this individual is challenged by General Dempsey, in fact Dempsey's not. Actually, sorry, General Dempsey was the commander of all the elite forces going in on Operation Husky. And when General Dempsey challenges him, he's not trying to out him or throw him out of the unit. He's just curious as to how young he is yeah. and how he can have such kind of unyielding martial spirit at such a young age. But 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 he is absolutely adamant that he's 21. And when the general when the general keeps challenging him, he eventually turns around and tells the general in no uncertain terms where he can put his question if he doesn't accept these 21. So, yeah. And actually, to be fair to Dempsey, who was a fantastic commander, he says, well, you have been very rude, but I applaud your spirit. Yeah. I, I, I would like a whole b battalion of young men like you. So, you know, that that's the kind of esprit de corps. Well, it was very kind of you not to swear, as the wording is in the book uh, from uh, from Titch. So presumably there were huge amounts of underage uh boys i suppose it would be boys signing up for this the sort of instead of 
getting drunk underage in Guildford High Street, where I live, uh, they were in the war, you know, getting rid of some of that testosterone and fighting for their for their country. And the First World War was probably even worse, wasn't it? Uh, Damien, I know you haven't really researched that, but uh, I guess it was. Certainly in Second World War, you know, you come across this time and time and time again. It's, it's, it's very, very common, yeah. Okay. So how many of those files behind you relate to this book? Now, I know that's a, probably a very difficult question, bearing in mind you started off with one book and you've now got three in the uh, trilo trilogy. Gee, yeah, so there's a whole shelf down there. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's about 12 A4 files of printed material. And then there's all the um, uh, online digital files as well. So it's it's a vast amount of material that, that you distill into, into one, one narrative, as it were. And when you're writing a chapter, how do you know where to find find the files in there and also you know you you do that clever thing about moving from uh sicily to germany from one chapter to the other and then going back I, I, I it's a certain style isn't it which keeps everyone interested it's fabulous well you, the, the key is in the, is in the research and the plan i mean you know w w when i write a plan for one of these books sometimes the plan is almost as long as the book because the plan is the chronology if you could imagine that the chronology of all the events you're going to write about with all the sources that pertain to the chronology so every single event you're going to write about has to have all the sources written into it so yeah. then you can follow the chronology as you write and pull the exact files from the shelf so each file has a number and a tab so you know that file six tab 14 is the relevant document for that section of the chronology. And that's absolutely how you have to do it. And it's the same if you're using books for research as well. So all my books, uh, I have to confess that I use for research, uh, not a great thing to admit to, but they all have copious notes scribbled in the margins. So I also know from my research document that when I need to pull such and such a book off the shelf, because there's a pertinent section in there, it's page 16, you know, quote number number three uh, a whatever it might be without that it's next to impossible you just couldn't do it wow wow and that process incidentally takes far longer than writing the book far far longer it's months right. and months and months and months of, of work putting that together and then i would say two or three months only writing it because once you start writing that's it you you really just got to keep going can't stop yeah, we've heard your story about how you do that, which is pretty unbelievable. We might come back to that uh, a little bit later because how you uh, discipline yourself to do that is 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 amazing. So, how long did it take you to actually write Forged in Hell? And about, uh, to write it was about three months. Right, but but you know to research it, it took the research is years and years and years distilled into that research document, and that you know just it's not just. Um, you know, reading reports and going to the archives and, and, and reading what's been written before. It's also going, speaking to veterans from the Second World War and also their families. So I've been doing loads of talks around the country. I was at Theatre Royal Bath on Friday. I was at Salisbury the day before. And then, you know, I, Imperial War Museum, the National Army Museum. And at just about every event, I have had a family member come up to me and say i'm so and so you've written about my father or my grandfather in your book and and you know at one event so in, i was doing the yeovil literary festival a lady came up to well she actually contacted me beforehand said look i'd like to come to your event 
um, and, and my father served in the SS in World War II, and you've written about him, and I want to bring his memorabilia. So she turned up with not just his wartime berry, but also, and, and I told her beforehand, you must be very careful with this material because it's priceless. She turned up with a genuine World War II SAS flag. It's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and so I said to her before the talk, I said, look, you know, you must, no, I didn't say you must, I said, would you like to come up at the end and we can hold up the flag? And, and you know, because this is really powerful. And um, and she did, she came up onto the stage. And then I, when she came up to the stage, I, I said, look, do you want to say a few words? And she ended up speaking for about 10 minutes and she was in tears by the end of it because she'd never spoken about her father's wartime service publicly. And I'd say half the audience was in tears as well. Very, very emotional. Mm -hmm. And then... At Yeovil, so that's last Thursday, a, 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 a I was going to say a young lady turned up. She will be a hundred on December the third, December the thirtieth this year. Her name is Eve Wharton, and she not only served in the war herself, but her husband served alongside David Sterling, who was the founder of the SAS. So you have these extraordinary, you know, moments and testimonies from from people. And then again on yes, at Friday at, at Theatre Royal Bath. The grandson of one of the men in SS Forged in Hell, um, Buttercup Joe Goldsmith, uh, a really standout character, came up to me and said, um, you know, not he said, thank you for writing the book. And I've learned things about my grandfather. I never knew and all the things you would hope for. But most importantly, he said, when you met my father, because I went to meet his father months ago in, during the research, he said, somehow you unlocked within him things he's never spoken about before. Oh, that yeah. process has been cathartic and transformational for him. Yeah. And those kind of things are really important. And then I think it's, we should mention, because it was Remembrance Sunday, you know, yesterday. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, over the years, I befriended a chap called Alec Borry, who was, who was one of the last two that we know of surviving SS veterans from World War II. Um, and just so that's Alec, that's his, that's his uh, memoir, you know, written for his family. It's, it's a private memoir. That's him in the SS. As, as, and, and again, Alec, OK, was known in the SS as Alec Boy Bory because he lied about his age before signing up. So was underage. Another one. And um, sadly, because Alec's always been very, very physically robust and compassmentous, but sadly, during Covid, he caught Covid. So he was bed bound after Covid. And last February or sorry, this February just gone, we went to, I, myself and a colleague went to interview him because we were worried that he might not be with us for much longer. And um, Alex said to me, um, <laughs> one of the first things he said, with vehemence, and bear in mind, he's almost 100. He was almost 100. He said, they couldn't wait to get rid of us quick enough. We were so unpopular with high command because we didn't do the We didn't do what they told us to do or the political thing. We did the right thing every time. And he said, you know, Paddy Maine uh, was the epitome of all that. And then he said, the thing about Maine was, you know, we would, if he asked us to follow him into hell, we would follow him into hell mm. because we revered him. There was that filial, brotherly bond that we had with him, which was immeasurable. But he said, equally importantly, if anyone was going to take you into hell, if you if you went into hell with Paddy Maine, you knew he had the greatest chance of bringing you back again because he had he would always lead from the front by example. And he had, as David Sterling used to say about him, this brilliant battle nostril. So he could always sense the way the battle was turning. Anyway, after that interview, which was very emotional, because it was so clear how much his commanding officer meant to him, you know, 
so many decades after the war. I went away, and if you can see that, can you see that portrait behind me of Paddy Main? Yes, we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had that painted, and then I got a um, a print print a, a print printed up, got it framed, and we went back to Alec, and we hung it on the wall above his bed where he could always see it, and he said with you know voice thick with emotion you know at least now i'll have my commanding officer watching over me during the twilight of my days and sadly alec passed away um just a few months back so we have lost another of those individuals who can you know take us back to those years and give us that you know powerful personal testimony what a wonderful and kind thing to do for him as well to spend some hours with him and uh, and then paint that portrait. That portrait, that that picture's in the book, isn't it? I can recognise that uh, exactly that picture of uh, Paddy. Yeah, Main. it's it, it's the iconic image of of, of Paddy Main um, that you know um, you, you see a lot, um, and it was painted by a war artist that is a kind of friend of mine. Um, and as I say, Alec was just um, well. Yeah, tears are in his eyes. It was a very special moment. Mm, very special moment. Fantastic. And um, there were a number of people like that. You sent me a picture on WhatsApp uh, about three weeks ago of um, of Jack Mann, yes. aged 99. Uh, yes. what, what was it holding up your book? What was the connection there, um, Damien? So Jack Mann is one of the very, very few surviving veterans of Special Forces from World War II. Jack uniquely, as far as I know, served in the um well first of all he was in the intelligence corps and then and he, sorry let's take a step back was jack lied about his age to get into the military another one that's why he's still with us because he was underage when he joined the military wow he's a teenager and he served he was put into the intelligence corps because he spoke decent german and italian because of his background and they asked him to go into italian prisoner of war camps and, and act like a stool pigeon to try and listen to the italian prisoners and, and report back intelligence. And Jack said, don't be ridiculous. I may speak Italian, but I don't speak it like a native. They'll know I'm not Italian, you know, within, within you know, minutes. And so he was posted to North Africa and ended up becoming an inter first an interpreter and then a radio operator with a long-range desert group. And the long-range desert group were the similar to the SS, but they carried out mainly intelligence gathering operations across the desert, less combat operations. And then, of course, after that, he, the long range, as the desert war wore down, he served in the SAS, but then largely in the special boat service, which was the sister-borne, uh, you know, waterborne raiding unit uh, for the rest of the war. So Jack had a absolutely, um, you know, unrivaled, uh, you know, five years in various units behind enemy lines and survived. That's the most extraordinary thing about him. I mean, he served alongside, you know, Anders Lassen, uh, the Danish um, iconic figure of the SAS and NSBS, who is the only member of the British SAS. He was Danish, but he served in the British SAS to win the Victoria Cross, although Lassen served mostly in the special boat, boat service. So Jack Mann is one of these people who I always run my manuscript. I send the manuscript to him before it, it's published, you know, when it's in draft form and Jack at the age of 99, he'll soon be 100, reads it to reads it and then sends me back all his comments, which, again, it's invaluable. You get that kind of real feedback from someone who was there. That's actually amazing, because in that picture, the first I was struck, first of all, here's a sort of 85 year old man standing outside his house 
looking pretty fit, probably walks two or three miles a day or whatever. And then you said he was 99. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How old do you think he was when um, when he joined up and lied about his age? About 30? I think he was. I think he was 16. He might even have been 15. I, okay. I know he was very, very young. Um, yeah. Wow. Now you talked at the top masterclass and hopefully you can do that again for us at some point later next year about transformation of command. I think I got that right. I tried to Google it and nothing came up. You were talking about leadership by example, I think. Is that what you meant by it? And it's transformational command. Transformation. Transformational command. It's a concept which now is recognized in the military and it's recognized in business and industry. In fact, you know, the military, you know, are called upon to individuals in the military are called upon to lecture to business and industry about it. So transformational command is, is really what, you know, an individual like Paddy Main was all about. So what does it embody? If you can imagine two types of means of command in a military structure, the one is by dint of your rank and your status. So you order men to do something mm -hmm. and they have to do it because they're following orders. Yep. And they'll face a court martial if they don't. Or the opposite end of the spectrum is transformational command, where you don't order your men to do anything in particular. You inspire them to the greatest efforts and, and most dangerous missions imaginable by your own example and by your own fortitude and by the esprit de corps that you forge between yourself and those men that you command. So, you know, uh, Paddy Main and David Sterling epitomized transformational command. It wasn't it wasn't a concept that was known about or recognized at that time, but they epitomized it. So if you read the accounts from the time that they, they would never order one of their soldiers to do anything, it would always be a question of, would you ever so mind traveling 2000 kilometers through the desert and attacking that German air base and possibly never coming back again. Um, and the, the concept of transformational command really, it's kind of wrapped up within the whole ethos of how the SAS was founded. So it was founded by Sterling as a as a meritocracy, classless institution. You know, it didn't matter where you came from, how you spoke, what your birth was. What mattered was your, your, that you were a self-starter, you had an independent mindset and you could think outside the box. These things were absolutely key. And so, um, you know, for an officer within the SAS, you had to earn respect. And you had to earn the respect of those men you were going to command. It wasn't deferred to you simply because of your rank. And equally, you had to get to know and befriend and, and assess the, the, the inner strengths of those men you commanded to know how best to command them and lead them into battle and what they were best capable of. And so, you know, a man like Paddy Main epitomized it because he would always I mean, I, I can't think of an exception, actually. He would always lead his men into battle, no matter what rank he acquired all through the war, and no matter the dangers they were facing. Hence, he was awarded for distinguished service orders because he carried out so many unbelievable feats of daring leading from the front. Now, that's transformational command. It's exactly what Alec Borry spoke about. It's why Alec Borry, at the age of 99, almost 100, still spoke about that individual as if he knew him as well as he had done when he was 18 and, and as if it was yesterday, because that's the bond that was forged between them. And when you read the accounts of those who were within, you know, Paddy Main's unit at the time, 1943, written about in the book, you know, they write about a brotherhood and a spree de corps 
which they know they have never experienced before in their life will never experience again. That's the nature of it. And, it, mm. and it's helped by having a overarching cause to fight for that you all believe in. So in the Second World War, of course, because we were fighting Nazi Germany, that was a gift. That that was a massive fillip to the concept of transformational command. But that's kind of what it, what it boils down to in a nutshell, if that makes sense. Mm. Absolutely. And you also talk about neurodiversity, but uh, what occurs to me there is in the book, Paddy Main was, you've, you've described Paddy Main from some quotes as bit crazy, bit mad, you know, went against orders, went in and did absolutely ridiculous things. Comes to mind the, uh, your book about when they went into those airfields in Crete and uh, just blew it up, despite the fact there were thousands of troops defending it. Is that what yeah. uh, neurodiversity is? Well, neurodiversity is a concept of, you know, minds that work differently. So, you know, you could you could lump into neurodiverse people with autism or dyslexia, whatever it might be. But, you know, people people tend to have a well, I don't know, maybe you don't. But a lot of people you meet have a mental idea of an SAS person as being six foot four tall and built like the proverbial barn door. So when I was giving my talk at the National Army Museum two weeks ago in London, uh, I was interviewed by Des Powell, who was a modern day veteran of the SAS. He's my height. I'm five foot six. And he's he's whippet slim, probably weighs quite a lot less than I do. He he not only uh, he he basically passed selection into the SAS twice because the first time he undertook it, he got right to the jungle phase, which is six months in right near the end, fell onto a spiked tree. They have these trees in the jungle. I know them well from having been there, got injured and, and had to pull out and they invited him back again he undertook selection all over again and if you ask any of these individuals as i have done a lot what gets you through selection they'll say it's what's in your mind yes you have to be physically fit and strong and capable but that isn't it it's what's in your mind it's your it's your psychological strength that keeps you going at the end and equally in the sas in the war and to this day what was required was an ability to think outside the box to to think the the unexpected and then actually to do the unexpected to put it into action where it would yield dividends so why was that important because if you think about it if you're in the north african desert and you've got to attack the enemy deep behind their lines you have to think of ways of doing so that are so outside of the box so unorthodox so unthinkable that the enemy will never imagine it possible so when you do attack in that way they're completely uh, you know ill-prepared and have, don't have their defences up. That's why you need mindsets which think in a different way. And that's largely uh, the reason why the SS was so unpopular, because they were mavericks, they thought differently, they acted differently, and their whole command structure and esprit de corps was not what the British military was about. And their form of waging warfare was ungentlemanly warfare, and avowedly so. And that just didn't go down very well, at the, certainly during the early stages of the war. Well, while we're talking about that, um, how's the film going with uh, Guy Ritchie and his £75 million budget, The uh, Ungentlemanly Conduct? I've got the title wrong there, haven't I? The uh, Ministry, <laughs> Ministry of, of Ungentlemanly, Ungentlemanly Warfare. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw an edit of it about three months ago. It, it's like no World War II movie you will have ever seen. But I mean, that uh, with all the best intentions, I think it's going to be great. Um, and I think it's going to be one of those films which really brings this story and in my view the greatest untold story the world has still to tell world war ii to a wider audience because i think i picked up you know in the events i went to and on social media that 
people seem to be worried that remembrance is maybe, you know, losing support amongst younger generations. So we have to do everything we can, if there's any truth to that, to keep these things real and make them accessible to younger generations and younger audiences. And, you know, that movie is the kind of movie that will. And this is where the SAS went in and stole three um, three warships, didn't they, from the harbour while the Germans were, were um, drinking? Yeah, it's it's actually the SOE. It's the Special Operations Executive. It's Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare. That's why uh, they coined that title. So right at the start of the war, as you all know, Churchill rightly reasoned that the Second World War was going to be a total war. He knew Hitler was going to fight in every way imaginable and conceivable and he knew you had to fight fire with fire so he formed the ministry for ungentlemanly warfare formerly called the special operations executive which was the fourth armed service as it was also known it wasn't navy wasn't air force wasn't army in fact it wasn't it wasn't populated mostly by service people at all it was populated by lawyers and accountants and artists and actors and and safe breakers and and petty criminals anyone they could think of who might bring something to bear in terms of new ways to fight the enemy and, and, you know, it did everything, assassinations, bribery, corruption, raising guerrilla armies, money laundering. And, and actually, it, it, it's going to make you laugh, but the SOE was so successful in its money laundering and economic warfare operations that by the end of the war, an order was sent out to the SOE to fudge its accounts because it was actually making a profit. So if you can imagine that, it was a self-financing, covert, deniable um, black operations unit. And that was Churchill's baby. Uh, and one of the things it was doing, for example, was, you know, viral money laundering and printing currency. So getting the Bank of England to just print vast amounts of forged notes. It was having to provide a raw currency to pilots and other people who might get shot down over enemy territory, because in your escape kits, obviously you needed, you know, the currency of the nations you were going to have to try and escape and evade through. So, yeah, so it's so so the Ministry of Energy Warfare, the individuals are some of the first ever operatives of the Special Operations Executive. And what that meant was you and it's Ian Fleming was heavily involved, and that's partly where he gets uh, James Bond and so you actually were given a double O. All SOE agents had a double O code name. Oh, so wow. you were 001. And if you had a double O, and this is all true, if you had a double O code name, you were licensed to kill. But it also meant that you were being being SOE, you deployed in civilian clothing. Now, if you deploy in civilian clothing and you're caught by the enemy, you are not a bona fide combatant of a bona fide you know, military nation. You are actually classed as a spy. And actually, if you're SOE, you would get to you would get denied and disowned by the British government anyway, especially on a mission like the one portrayed in Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, because the ships they're going to seize are in a Spanish harbour. They're in a harbour of a neutral territory. So if Britain is seen to be stealing German Italian warships from a neutral harbour, of course, Spain will be forced to join the war with cataclysmic consequences. So the stakes are unbelievably high. And, you know, as Churchill and their commanders at SOE said, if you are captured, you will be denied. We have no, we have no knowledge of you. They carried Swedish passports, and you will face what's coming. Wow! And Hitler had put put out a directive to uh, kill these people as fast as he could, didn't he? From uh, from what you what you wrote, uh, and even if they were in uniform, to kill them. If they... Yeah. So Hitler, for for whatever reason, and there's various you know debates as to why. 
<laughs> he took the operations of of uh, the SOE and the commandos and the SAS and other related units very, very personally. Now, of course, General Heydrich was assassinated by the SOE. So they did go after some fairly high ranking Nazi German, Nazi German uh, 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 commanders. So perhaps Hitler was worried he might get assassinated himself. And in fact, SOE did put together a plan to assassinate Hitler. All the documents are in the National Archive. It's great. He They were stopped because the Allied High Command argued that at that stage of the war, Hitler was more of a menace to the German armed forces than he was of any benefit. So better he stayed in power. But yeah, Hitler took very, very personally against um, SOE, SAS commando operations. And so in October 42, he got his lawyers to draw up to try to legally justify a written order. It's known as the commando order to execute all captured allied agents, but also special forces operators, whether they be in uniform or out of uniform, armed or unarmed, resisting or trying to surrender. Well, that's a war crime. You can't kill bona fide. You can't just torture them and execute bona fide soldiers of a bona fide military nation. Um, and 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 it reflects the fact that he was deeply, deeply affronted by these kind of operations. Mm. Now you talked about I'm not, I don't know that you've written about you're talking about the assassination in Prague, aren't you? Of Heinrich. Heinrich yeah. mm. Oh right. I, well, I read a book about that, and it wasn't it wasn't yours, but I went when I was in Prague to where the shootout was in in the church and looked yeah. at the bullet holes, which fabulous, um, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow amazing you can almost feel the fear yeah fear there that was an sas because it said in the book that i read it, they were czechoslovakian guys and no, it, it, it's a special operations it's an soe mission but the czechs you know soe had you know french sections czech sections german sections austrians every single nationality you can imagine every single you know nation that, that opted to fight against Nazi Germany, whether they'd been occupied or not. So the Poles, all these nations, came to the UK, were headquartered in London, and then they, obviously their people were recruited into SOE, put into that national section, and then dropped back into their countries to cause havoc and mayhem to set the lands of the enemy ablaze. That was their that was their aim. And so with the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, it was Czech SOE agents who dropped in to carry it out, because obviously they could... You know, they were locals and they had the, sure. the the greatest possibility of pulling it off. And the Germans destroyed the village that they came from, didn't they? Killed everybody. That's what I That's right. Yeah. That's what I read. Uh, Damien, this is fantastic. And I think uh, we'll have to get you back. I have a few questions in the chat box, if that's all right. And anything else that uh, occurs to you? Um, question one, simple question. Where do you get your book titles from? Do you have an idea at the outset or do they grow out the book or do the publishers make the decision? Yeah, normally they grow out of the book. So so with this one, um, SS Forged in Hell, it's actually a quote from David Sterling. So after the war, he was being interviewed and he said, and I paraphrase, I, I quote it right at the start of the book. He says, you know, the SAS was forged in hell. And when I wrote the book, because it goes into some very dark places, I mean, you know, by the end of the Italian campaign, Paddy Main's SAS is so depleted by casualties, uh, injuries, but also psychological trauma, let's not forget, what we would now recognise as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that they are no longer a viable fighting force. That's wow. how horrendous the fighting has become. And and in the final battle at Termoli, and, and I'd always heard people say Termoli was hell, 
I never really realized why until I wrote that section. Um, the SAS and, and the commandos go in to take the coastal city or town of Tomoli to outflank the German line to, to, to execute a landing above the, the latitude of Rome. That's, that's the idea of the landing. And then to hold Tomoli until Allied forces can get there. And Hitler is so uh, enraged and General Kesselring so enraged that they send in the whole of the 16th Panzer Division to retake the town. And they have orders to drive the British invaders back into the sea at all costs. And so you have a few hundred SS and commandos facing the 16th Panzer, Panzer Division. And the biggest piece of weaponry they have is, uh, is, is field a few field guns, which they've scavenged off the Royal Artillery gunners who very bravely manned their guns until the last and are all dead or injured. So it's an absolute, it's an absolute hellish, hellish battle. And, and 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 they persevere, but at great cost. And so, you know, because of that, that 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 phrase "forged in hell" uh, just seemed um, uh, appropriate. And so, yeah, generally, a title falls out of the writing. I have to say, and mostly, it, it, it will be something that resonates with you as you're telling the story. Um, yeah, that that's that's normally how it works. Okay, I'm keeping going on the questions. When you write when you write your books, how do you decide where to start and finish? given that you're researching World War II all the time. And linked to that, um, David asks, once you have an idea of your overall story, how do you select which parts of your enormous base of material to use in the final narrative of the book? Two questions. Yeah, those are, those are really good questions. Um, so I'll answer the second one first. How do you select, I mean, selection of the material to tell is the, the single greatest aspect of all. And I say that because, and I'm not criticising any other authors, but there is a tendency for military history to be rather dry and ungripping. And often that's because authors try to insert into the book they are writing all the knowledge they know. Yeah. You should do the reverse. You should try and insert into what you write the sum of the knowledge you think your readers need to enable the narrative to grip them to the end. That's how you write military history as a grip as a gripping narrative. And so because of that, you've got to choose very carefully. And I think the way you do that is you choose the characters you want to follow and the key operations that you think are germane to the narrative you're telling. You don't have to tell them all. And there's no point in telling them all if they repeat each other because re repetition by its very nature can become boring. So that selection process is 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 vital. It's absolutely vital. And I've forgotten the first question. Well, I think the first question was very similar. Um, uh, I'm just pulling it up. When you write your books, how do you decide where to start and finish? Given, I mean, given the trilogy, can't even say the word, can I? But, you know, World War Two was six years, wasn't it, basically, from start to finish? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one to answer. I, I can only say it's instinctive. You know, something makes you me realize that there is a there's a beginning point and an end point and 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 i just think that comes out of the writing that's probably not a very useful answer but that's it's, it's just it's an instinct that you kind of develop and and, and what i'm reading at the moment um the, a book you recommended um mindset yep mindset by um carol dweck very good book and in mindset she talks about fixed mindsets and uh flexible mindsets flexible yeah yeah, and flexible mindsets are based upon the, the concept you can pretty much learn anything 
if you put your mind to it and yep. it's the same it's the same with when you're writing if you put your mind to it the right beginning and end point will come to you as as you're engaged in the writing mm. and, and sometimes far? sometimes you'll write the beginning after you finish the book do you get my drift you write the whole book and say ah i know now what i need to do at the start i did yeah. i did that with forged in hell forged in hell starts not in february 43 that's chapter two chapter one is october 1945 the disbandment of the SAS, because I wanted to start by saying this is the way they were rewarded for all that follows. They were they were just disbanded as a unit. It's just a poignant way to enter into the story. And did you write that after you'd written the book? Yeah, or... right, yeah. But, no, yeah okay. I'd I written an old book and it. thought, no, let's open there. So, yeah. Okay. For anyone that's watching that wants to uh, buy some Christmas presents, Nancy's put in the chat. She's just bought two of your books online and Amazon have got a special deal on today, £11. <laughs> now, I know you won't get rich on that, Damien, but uh, it might uh, enable you to uh, uh, to buy a beer or two tonight, but not much. <laughs> but uh, Amazon play around with the prices all the time, don't they? They do with my book as, as well. Um, and final question uh, before we turn the recording off and ask you to stay on with us uh, when you're writing a book about a uh, specific event do you write in the present or the past tense that's from jenny in california mostly in the past tense but i have written some more um more contemporary military books um where i have written in the present tense because i felt the story was more immediate if that makes sense um but world war ii in the past tense Fantastic. Damien, thanks for joining us yet again. I hope you'll come back and uh, join us uh, in 2024 and join us live as well. But uh, can I ask uh, members of Monday Night Live to give Damien uh, a round of applause in the normal silent way on Gallery View? Fantastic. Thanks for watching this. If you're listening to this on YouTube or on the podcast uh, channel thank you you can always find damien in uh, on his uh, on his websites and uh, he's still doing a tour of the country which is a book tour you've done 25 so far damien i think you said and you've got a few more to come i looked up hungerford today and it's sold out so we better, oh, people better get their tickets uh, pretty oh, quick and uh, godfrey and i look forward to catching up with you for lunch on the first of uh, December and if you'll stay on for questions that will be uh, fantastic yeah no problem. thanks for joining us thank you